Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Wine. It's one of the few things as old as time. There are different types and colors, and it can range in price from inexpensive to unaffordable. It's also one of the few exports many countries aggressively compete to be known for. Picking the right wine is enough to make your head spin. But today's guest, Angela Aiello, has spent the better part of her career helping young adults make sense of it. Angela started in hospitality while at university, working in the Four Diamond restaurants at some of the Niagara region's biggest wineries. After graduation, she relocated to Toronto, continuing in wine retail. From there, she moved into the corporate world, working at XM Satellite Radio before pivoting into executive recruitment. But Angela continued to pursue her passion for wine on the side. She harnessed the power of social media, uploading self-made wine info videos to YouTube. Those videos laid the foundation for what would eventually become the Aiello Wine Club, Toronto's premier wine club. Angela sold the Aiello Wine Club after more than a decade and is focusing her time on covering the wine industry. A dedicated wine journalist, content creator, and influencer, we'll learn today why she is affectionately known as the Super Wine Girl. People call me Super Wine Girl, and I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a freelancing international journalist. I do education around wine for students, for regular people, for the media, um, and I, I do a lot of travel. There is a lot to unpack there today. You, you're doing a lot of things, Ange. <laughs> we're we're going to get through all of that, but the first thing I want to do is go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Uh, well, I'm an Ontarian, so uh, Canadian. I was born in Kitchener and Waterloo. My family ended up moving from Brampton to Bramley, but I spent most of my time in Niagara. I always say um, amongst the vines. You know, Super Wine Girl was born in a little in the, or born, I say in a way, but uh, in in Smithville. I grew. I went to high school in Smithville, and I went to university in St. Catharines. So, uh, it's kind of like I was born from West. I was born in West, in West Lincoln. And tell us a little bit about life growing up. Correct me if I'm wrong, even though even though you you grew up in wine country, you're in the wine industry, you started off on a dairy farm or, or you lived on a dairy farm? Yeah, you know, I grew up at a time when, you know, there was no social media. And Vic, I'm sure you know this too, but uh, my dad was an engineer and we just got one computer. So, you know, we had dial-up. So it wasn't like we spent a lot of time inside, but we were outside with cows and we had cats and we had bunnies and we had ducks and bikes and we biked through forests and played in hay fields and um yeah it was a you know I grew up on a very large it was a two acre plot that my family owned but it was within a very large dairy farm for the region so it's uh, we always spent time over at our neighbors doing you know seeing all of the uh, animals and livestock they had over there it was like going to the zoo every now and then so did you did they did they pull you into any chores like milking the cows at dawn or anything like that? <laughs> you know, I never did that at all, and uh, even to this very day, I don't think I've ever milked a cow. <laughs> I think you're the only person to have ever lived on a dairy farm, especially a young person who has found a way to kind of, I guess, avoid those kind of farming chores. That's true. I mean, we definitely did our fair share of chores. I had three sisters that I grew up with. So we were, you know, six, six of us in the family. And uh, my mom still put us to work. We were still a hardworking family. So, uh, you know, I cut the grass on a riding lawnmower. We got used to get like buckets of wood we'd get in the summer and have to stack them all to keep the house warm in the winter. So, you know, I never really uh, milked a cow, but I definitely can say I've done a lot of uh, hard work on the farm. So we know you didn't milk a cow growing up, even though you were on a dairy farm, but what were your interests or hobbies? Uh, 
as a kid, I think, um, you know, my very first job when I was in high school was, it's funny, it was almost like a playoff of Instagram, but I was a, a journalist too. I used to go to all these events that were happening, community events, take a photo and design the caption for one of the local newspapers. So that was sort of one of the very first jobs that I think I really had like to do. And when I was in high school, I sat, I was the president on the student council. So I arranged a lot of events and dances and tours and did all that kind of kind of stuff. So I definitely found a way to get involved in the community, did a little bit of volunteering here and there. And so it, it, you definitely, I kept myself busy with, I think, a lot of the traits that I'm still le leveraging and use to this day in my career. I was going to say, the other thing that I really did was uh, I played basketball. My dad coached me in basketball. So I did a lot of, uh, I did a little bit of sports, basketball and volleyball. And then, you know, my musical career, I you went to church and I sang songs and wrote songs with my guitar. So I was pretty like well-versed uh, little kid, I think. I ask all of my guests who their influences were growing up, and I'm usually getting brother, sister, parent, family member, sometimes an author. You have a really interesting answer to this. Who was your <laughs> biggest influence? I do. This is really funny, but I loved watching Star Trek, and I looked up to Captain Picard, and uh, my, my parents were pretty influential. Um, my dad coached me, coached me in basketball. <laughs> them in there like, too. I really, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't say that I had a lot as a kid. I didn't have a lot of like, um, mentors or re really like, you know, I went to school. I was pretty like a pretty straight laced, uh, pretty straight laced little kid church in school. And, and that was my regular, like I had to watch Star Trek, the next generation. And so it was so funny when Picard came out recently, you know, and he shows up in a vineyard with a dog and I'm like, this I, is I was just about to say true. that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was it was really funny but uh yeah so i definitely clarify it, it's technically you were looking up to captain picard not patrick stewart yeah i guess so i mean i mean i i think now that i know patrick stewart and you know a little bit more about how interesting he is as a human i think you know i still follow him on instagram and he's such a he's such a fabulous not only is he a great actor but he's a great human and he's an alternative voice too which is so fantastic as well. And I think, yeah, so I guess I, I looked up to Captain Picard. Yes. Mm -hmm. that, that is an interesting point you bring up here is that we didn't really get it without social media. We didn't really get a chance to know the people behind our guests are on screen heroes. We just knew him as Captain Picard, who, you know, did the next generation in a series of movies. And it wasn't until I guess probably the last 10 years that we would see. And I guess you're referring to sort of like the way he interacts with Ian McKellen, like they're like BFFs. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the way Captain Picard kind of went through this like space revolution and he had this great team that he worked together and all these new people that he met, like it seemed very adventurous. I mean, even growing up, I didn't have cable. We had bunny ears. So it's like six o'clock. That was that was Star Trek time. You know, we weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons and TV was cut off at eight o'clock. So for some reason, my mom uh, let me watch Star Trek. And that, and that was my that was probably one of my biggest uh, influences growing up that I really, really liked. Yeah, my parents were the same way with video games, cutting it off. And you almost want to go back in time and just say to them, you think TV's bad? Give it 20 years. Wait till social media pops up. TV's going to look yeah. like the angel. Yeah, exactly. Right. 100 percent. What was your very first job? Uh, so, yeah, so the, I guess I mentioned it a little earlier, but I had a very small job where, you know, I got like $20 an article for taking a photo at a local event and doing the caption for the local uh, newspaper. But I, I didn't I guess I didn't really consider that a job, even though my mom drove me around and we did that. But my very first job was like slinging pizzas at the downtown pizzeria and customizing subs and deep frying wings. And and uh, so that was kind of like my first and I was there for probably two or three years, I remember you know, bringing two fours of pizza into my class sometimes and us having pizza Fridays and, and everything in high school. So 
Yeah, pizza pizzerias. That's I'm a slinger. I'm a pizzeria slinger. <laughs> between between restaurant work and retail, it seems to be those are the kind of the two categories that I mean our generation gravitated towards for our first part time job. What did you learn about yourself working in uh, quick service restaurants? I mean, definitely how to be adaptable, uh, how to be dedicated to a team because when you show up, if there's if it's a small team of three people working on a Saturday night and you called in sick, I mean, you were you were letting your team down. So I feel like, uh, you know, the hospitality world and and that's really, really, honestly, that whole trade and philosophy has carried me through to a, to all of my career. And when I was leading a team too, it was very important to show up, to be there, to be present and to be a great team player. What brought you to Brock university where I had the opportunity to meet you and why were you studying business communications? So I finished high school and, um, I was actually the only in in my entire family, only the second person to ever even want to go to, to university. My dad went to university of Waterloo, which is where I was born. I was born when he was 21, when he was still in university and uh, nobody else in my family had ever been to university. And I remember, you know, telling my dad, dad, I want to go to university. And he was like, that would be great. And I remember my mom saying, maybe just go to college. You even know what you want to do. And I was like, I have no idea what I want to do. But I know that I want to go to university. So I did, I applied for I applied for a communications program because, to be honest, in high school, I, I succeeded in the arts. Uh, math and sciences weren't necessarily something that I really excelled at or enjoyed. I'm um, with you on that. So it was like, okay, wh- what things can I get into was my first my first thing. And also, like, how do I keep something general and broad enough that it, you know, it kind of will teach me more philosophical and, and ideas I can take with me and apply to different areas of life, depending on what I wanted to be or do. And communications was kind of really coming out at the time, you know, PR, mainstream media. Um, it was just kind of fluttering in. I don't think it was, you know, I, I wouldn't say, I don't know how long communications has been around. I think it's been around forever, but the media communications program was something that was enticing to me. And I originally actually, so I ended up getting accepted to Laurier and Brock and decided on Brock because I had had a job at, at a winery that was going to help me pay for school because I didn't get any loans. And my parents didn't have the money to pay for it. So that's what kept me at Brock was a, a job and a program. And I, I actually originally moved my, my major. I started off in poli-sci because they accepted me in poli-sci in in at Brock and communications at Laurier and then once I had finished the first year in poli-sci I actually moved over to the business communications at uh, at Brock University and it was such a fab course like I really enjoyed a four-year program over at Brock. Do you think your life as super wine girl would be where it is today or even exist had you gone to Laurier and, and left the whole Niagara region which is let's be honest the epicenter of wine in Canada sorry Okanagan Valley? <laughs> you know that's that's a hundred percent truth uh i it would not be the same i probably would have maybe gone the corporate way a little bit more than maybe the the wine industry way so in in a way i'm very thankful i was able to to stay in in niagara very thankful what was your first job after graduation so i ended up working um at both of the four diamond restaurants in niagara throughout the course of my time um in in niagara so i did vineland estates wine restaurant from 16 to around uh, 18, 19. And then majority of my university career, I ended up going to Peller Estates Winery in the restaurant and I graduated and um, moving to Toronto, you know, I was like, what am I going to do in Niagara? I'm not sure what I'm going to do here. And uh, so I flooded to Toronto and ended up getting a transfer of employment down to the, one of the largest at the time, one of the largest wine retail stores down by the lake and uh, on the Harbor front. 
because it was owned by the same winery. So I kind of already had a job moving to the city. It was retail. So now I had moved from hospitality to retail, uh, which was so different. I mean, the pace of hospitality and the pace of retail were completely different. And my, my brain had been sort of working on this very, very fast paced train when I was, when I was going to school and working in Niagara. And then at the same time, I was sort of down there, another friend, a friend of a friend of mine from Brock ended up uh, getting me an interview at a video production company. And for a while I straddled both of those two jobs. I did wine retail um, to kind of supplement some income and then worked as a receptionist answering phones at the busiest commercial production house in, in Toronto for about two or three years. You mentioned four diamond restaurants. Can you just tell the audience what that is? Cause I, I'm, I kind of think I have an idea. Like I'm thinking Michelin star. I don't really know too much about it, but like, like what kind of class of restaurant are we talking here when it's labeled or labeled a yeah. four diamond restaurant? That's a, that's a great question. So Michelin star restaurants are not actually labeled in Canada. We do not have Michelin star restaurants here in Canada at all. And uh, you could consider like a four or five diamond restaurant back in the day, like back 20 years ago, I guess you could consider that, you know, like a three-star Michelin at the time. Now it's completely changed. And I think fine dining has elevated itself to something like, you know, that's incredibly different than what it was 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, a four, four diamond was the high, like five diamond was the highest you could get um, at, at a hotel or restaurant or spa in, in, uh, in Canada, I believe at the time. So, I mean, you're looking at elevated service, white tablecloth, you're looking at, uh, you know, wine professionals serving your wine, incredibly amazing glassware, you know, expensive food, sometimes not a lot for volume, uh, educated staff. I mean, that was the other part that uh, I think was very interesting when when I tell people, when people ask this question is that I, we were having tests when I was in the winery business, when we were working in restaurants, you had menu tests, you had wine list tests, you were tasting when you weren't working. It was like, uh, it was a bit of a of a, a bit of a, I wouldn't want to call it like a military activation, but it was the focus on uh, incredible service and incredible food. And, you know, the crazy chefs behind the curtain, that whole idea was something that I definitely experienced uh, at a very young age and learned how to navigate those, uh, that wild political system of a restaurant. <laughs> so when someone said to you at the restaurant, what would you pair this red wine with? They wanted to make sure that you damn well had a good recommendation, I assume. Oh, 100%. You're looking at, I'm talking about the science of why things pair together. You know, the, the relationship between acid and fat and the relationship between tannin and salt. And so it wasn't like you were just putting a, a red wine on the table. You were really educating the, the people who sat down in those chairs who would pay sometimes 150 to upwards of $150 per person for a dinner or a lunch that they were getting the best that they could get in the country. I mean this in the most sincere way, but the people you're serving when you sling pizzas or when you were doing that in high school are probably different from those going to the Four Diamond restaurants. Did you learn anything just by observing the type of people that came to those types of restaurants? Yes. You know, I I grew up in a very humble family. And so I would definitely consider myself a pizzeria girl. You know, I still am a pizzeria girl. I've learned to become sort of a Michelin star diner. That's That's for sure. Uh, with humility at the front of of that of that entire lens, I think is very important. Um, but there's definitely there there was education around the class system to me during all of this, which you know you look at wine as a as a very high luxury good. You know when people are in bad times they drink wine. When people are in good times they drink better wine. So at the at the same time you definitely learn 
a lot about people. You learn how to talk to people when you're slinging pizzas and you're, you know, double pepperoniing and you're two for one wings and you're learning a lot when you're talking about acid and fat and you're dealing with high profile chefs. So it's, it's, once again, it was an environment to learn adaptability. Um, Also like to learn how to love people in various different ways, I think is very interesting about how people master their own craft. And then also how to learn from each and every one of those people is also very important because everybody has something to teach you. During this early period, though, you were juggling, say, full-time office work, but you were also planting the seeds of the Aiello Wine Club. Tell us where the tell us where the initial idea came from to just kind of go out on your own and start something. So working wine retail was a dull job. It was like walking around stacking wines and, uh, you know, you talk to your team members and another actual um, Brock University grad of mine came moved to Toronto. I got him a job and the two of us were kind of like winos. He grew up in, in Niagara too. And, and, uh, he's a, he's a, he's a wonderful guy in a way where he really helps move things along. You know, like I'm the, I'm an idea person. I come up with a billion ideas. I come up with a billion ideas a day. And, and he was like, and I love the wine club idea. We should do it. So and you were so strategy we, and he was operations. Exactly. It's a 100%. And, uh, and so he, and he had a bit more of a digital, the digital savviness in him too. I was the event side. He was doing all of our emails and videos at a time when YouTube first came out. And so knowing we were both working wine retail and we found that there was a niche of people, particularly young people who had nowhere to go to learn about wine. And so the wine club stemmed from that sort of insight. It's like, we're working here. These people need to know about wine. Where are they going to learn? We should provide something for them. So that's, that's when we started a wine club and we would meet maybe monthly. Um, we would do our own home videos, educational videos, which you can still find on YouTube and they crack me up. Uh, it's crazy. And uh, and that's where the wine club came from. And so we sort of started our own little social club that grew. It started in 2006 and we incorporated that year as well, just because, you know, we thought it would be fun. And it's it was 10 years of uh, 13 years total when Aiello Wine Club kind of really grew into into a whole phenomenon that I think helped change the wine culture of Toronto. Where did the name Aiello Wine Club come from? I know I'm asking the obvious, but I got to ask. It's, it's, it seems obvious, but it's not always so obvious. I feel like people love the name, but never really understand where the origination came from. And as a, when I was in, when I was in high school, I ran for president and nobody could say my last name. It was a really small high school. Really? And yeah, 400 people. Nobody, I don't know if it was just like, people could not say my last name. Look, you so, and I both have pretty simple Italian last names and I got that too. I've heard, I literally, if I get a dollar for every time I was called Geneva, I could retire. Yeah, I know. Right. I'm like, people are going to say my last name, right? If it's the last thing on earth that they remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I did a campaign. I did like yellow dots around the city, yellow dots with the letter I in them and yellow dots with the word I yellow, uh, I yellow, like spelled I yellow. My last name is a yellow. And then it was like the very last part of the campaign because it was a, a, a teaser campaign was vote I yellow. And I won the campaign. And so it kind of like always stuck with me that that works. People understand that something about that works. And when we were debating on what to call the wine club, I just kind of one day, you know, went to blogger.com and, and Google GoDaddy and, and bought the name and boom, that's how it started. So during this time, while you were, you were ramping up the Ayala wine club in the evening, during the day, you were the assistant to the CEO of Sirius XM satellite radio Canada, and you cite them as being, I mean, your first mentor. I mean, what did you learn from them? That was probably and still is actually one of my most amazing um, mentor 
relationships that I had. I remember applying for that job. A friend referred me to this job and under a CEO. And I was like, oh man, this is so cool. I'm going to work under a CEO. Like, okay, I know how to answer phones. This is just great. Like literally that's what I thought. And uh, I met this, this guy named Stephen Tapp. And uh, we met at a Starbucks. He didn't want to meet at the at the office. And uh, we started chatting. And he's like the coolest dude I've ever met. I'm like, oh, this sounds really great. He He definitely helped build my career up in a way where he supported everything. You know, you sometimes you roll into jobs and people are like, this is your only job. We don't want to know what's going on in your personal life. And he was completely the opposite. He was like the older brother I never had. And my hard work ethic really paid off. I mean, I was... I ended up being almost a uh, an assistant for the entire executive team in many different ways. And so I learned from marketing, I learned from the CEO, and I learned from a company that sort of started small. I mean, there was XM Canada started off as three people and growing to where when I was there over 150 people. And I left just before the merge that it happened um, over to uh, to Sirius. And so you watch this company and this this person, Stephen Tapp, this one guy, take a company from three people to 150 people. And you watched how you coach. That was probably one of the most amazing things to me is that he he really coached people really well. He knew people. His his behavior was, you know, he really knew how to be approachable and also take in people under his wing and then also help coach you along the way. And I think he's he was actually the very first investor to help me start my website when I, you know, needed a couple grand to start up a website. And uh, and it's still to this day, he's you know, he's still somebody I call to to get help on many different occasions, and he's given me many different of his many of his connections uh, in his own business life, of which I'm working with right now. So it's been it's been a really wonderful connection for me to be able to make. When you adopt him as a mentor, do you say to him flat out, "Hey, can you be my mentor?" Or do you just kind of put the title off to the side and just keep picking his brain on things and just kind of let the relationship organically blossom from there into a mentor and a mentee? I mean, I think naturally he became a mentor. Uh, you know, we didn't have to mention that because I was his assistant and he was my boss. And so there was this sort of natural, um, you know, how's, how are you doing? How's your family? You know, he was going through a breakup the same time I was going through a breakup. So there were these moments, I think, in time when you connected as, as friends and then as people you look up to. Um, and I think that, you know, it was never really like, hey, you're my mentor until after he actually left XM and I ended up working for the uh, the finance department. And I remember us meeting for lunch and he had already left. And and I was like, you know, will you still be my mentor now? And, you know, obviously the answer was yes. And so there were some I think after that sort of professional relationship ended and you moved into the like, will you volunteer time to help me grow still? I think that's when the. uh that's when the relationship changed into something that was more like, can you, will you? Um, and I appreciate everything you've done for me. And I, I want you in my life still, you know? After you left XM, you moved into the recruitment world. You were a headhunter, but it was during this time that you turned your back on, I guess, full-time day jobs working for someone else. And you decided to go all in with ILO. Like, what was the trigger there? Like, when did you realize, okay, this is something I can do full-time? You know, that's a really great question. I think every entrepreneur has that moment when you you go, is this something that's just going to be in the background of my life or am I going to take this full throttle? And at the time, I was getting some inquiries from different regions and brands to do work. Um, My events had sort of picked up to a pace where they were demanding more time from me. More people were interested in coming to uh, educational events. Wine school classes had sort of learned to pop up. 
And I had sort of found, like thought about in my head that this is the moment, like there are times when you're just, you know, you're spending too much time or when you need to spend more time and you, and you can really sense that if you spend just a little bit more time, this is going to grow even more. And so there was a demand from the wine club to, for more events, for um, outreach to clients had sort of, you know, I, I knew I could feel that there was a desire for people to want to be in this world. I mean, I think that time when I decided to go full time, there was a desire in wine to reach young people. And I think before this time, I think everyone had really just, you know, settled on the fact that there were enough people buying wine and nobody had to outreach to a new market. But around, I guess, 2010, 2011 or so, it was right around that time when I think the millennium, you could say, when people were like, wow, look at these young people. They're starting to drink. We need to find a way to reach them. And that I could feel that cultural shift change in the industry and in consumers. And I knew that if I were to be trailblazing in my industry, that I had to full throttle just say, look, I'm here. I'm the only person doing this. I was the only person in Toronto doing pop-up classes and gathering people together around wine. I was the only sort of social community. So nobody's doing that. Who else are all these brands and regions and who are these people going to look for and go to when they're looking at a new demographic of people to bring to wine? And so I could feel that. And it was a, it was a very exciting time. You were basically the founder and for lack of a better term, the mascot or the face mm-hmm. of your company. You were the company. Yes, I definitely was. Uh, both both my partner and I were, we, you know, we definitely did a lot of work, but uh, there was, after sort of all of that stuff, I think when I decided to go full-time, my business partner at the time decided, you know, I don't know if I really want to go full-time with wine. Um, it's not really my thing. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to I'm gonna keep going. And, I, and I, at that time, that crux of that time, um, you know, and he's still in my life and, a, and, a, and we still drink wine together and we talk about actually a lot about the sober movement these days. But uh, I just full throttle went into the entire wine industry like a, like a storm. I just took it by storm and made sure everybody knew who I was. You said something interesting, though, and I, I want to know if that's kind of like your quick elevator pitch on what the Ayala Wine Club was. And you said that your goal was to educate young people on wine. Would you say that was the problem you were trying to solve? 100%. I think bringing young people to wine and then making them conscious about what they're drinking and giving them what I, what I call and will call forever wine confidence is the base of what the business is built on. During this time, though, you also became a bit of a media personality. You would be on uh, early morning talk shows around Ontario. They'd have you on the radio. You and I were both in the same program at Brock. They didn't teach us how to be on the microphone or in front of the camera. How did you train yourself there? You know, I think um, that is a, a great question. And I think it's, it's you know, for a couple of my people that I knew were like, you should go into media training. You should go into media training. And I never had any money to go into media training. So I just watched people and emulated the people that I thought were good at their jobs. And I think, you know, one of the things that makes you the best that you can be at business and in life in general is to listen. Stop talking and listen. Yes. And that is still still to this day what makes a great host. It's what makes a great writer. It what makes a great partner, a friend. It's a skill set for life. And it's like all about listening. And so I kind of, because there's a lot of people who go in front of a camera and just start chatting. They just really like to be heard. And I think that more and more, the more I started to be in front of people, I started to lead wine school classes. I started to lead corporate tastings. I started to go in front of the camera, in front of the mic you realize that other people have a lot to say. So 
I would just sit back and listen and then say things here and there that, you know, hopefully were short, but smart and memorable. The opportunity arose to sell the IELA wine club. I mean, this is something that a lot of, a lot of business owners relish. When that opportunity was put in front of you, how did you first feel? Were you uneasy, excited? I mean, this is your baby you're talking about and someone wanted to buy it off of you. You know, this is a very interesting topic for me too, because I, so I ran Ayala Wine Club for 13 years and um, I knew there, there had to be something next. Like I, I have this intuitive feeling, particularly in, in business and particularly when it's my business and has a lot to do with me, I have intuition feelings. And so around the, uh, around the end of 2018, um, sorry, 28. Yeah. Around the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018, I started to feel like I was, the business was becoming a bit stagnant and I, I had to move it forward and I didn't really know what to do. So I'm sure in, for many entrepreneurs, you might come across somebody looking to buy your business, or maybe you're outsourcing someone to buy your business. So I decided to kind of go into a research phase and figure out, you know, what, who would be somebody that I would partner with? I wasn't even thinking about a sale because, you know, wine is will and always be my business, but who can I help bring on board to help me elevate this, this business that I'm doing? I, I was conquering Toronto. Uh, I had Toronto down pat, but I was spreading myself too thin. I had a venue that it was fully licensed where I was running five days, five days a week. I was running wine school classes that were sold out and I was running big festival events in the city uh, five or six times a year. I was writing for various different media outlets and I was at the edge of being very burnt out. So I ended up um, sitting down with the ladies who run Notable Life Media Group and talking about a content partnership platform and how can we, you know, how can Aiello become a little bit more national and how can I elevate my voice and how can we, how can we help build Aiello um, on a national level? And lo and behold, after many conversations, we ended up to, we ended up merging, they acquired the brand and uh, we ended up evolving into a, a, a very interestingly different type of business because after spending a lot of time and I spent actually a lot of money analyzing which part of the business is, is worth fighting for and moving forward with, it was quite clear that there was, you know, some areas that we should be pushing forward on and some areas that we should possibly be letting go. And the the cultural shift in Toronto also changed the wine culture shift. There was way more young people. We were still one of the largest wine clubs in, in Canada. Um, and we gathered, you know, at the end of 2018 or end of 2019, we did 150 wine events a year. So we did a lot of education and I was, I had a regular standing television morning show that I was doing. And so there was a lot happening, but I definitely was spread too thin. And so we definitely had to look at the business and say, okay, what's worth keeping? What's not worth keeping? What is the future? You know, what, what are we actually doing to help build up our consumers, change our consumers, motivate our consumers that nobody else is doing? Cause you know, when, when businesses are really great at what they do, when the wine club was really great at what we did, people copied that. And I loved that because, you know, we need more of that in life where, hey, that, that person's doing something great. Let's do something like that. Because everybody is attached to different types of personalities, different types of events. And so, you know, when in the last two years, there were wine clubs popping up everywhere. There were social clubs popping up here. There were, you know, different sort of alternative voices in the market that were helping to conquer the same goals that I had originally set out to 13 years earlier. Where did the nickname Super Wine Girl come from? In every brand story, there's kind of like these fun chapters that you have that, you know, you really love to tell. And I started 
when I opened the wine cave, which was basically a basement in, it was a basement that I renovated into becoming a vintage wine cellar to house wine school classes and winemaker visits and all this cool stuff. I was so inspired. There was a time where, you know, I was fully writing. I was very creative. I was painting walls. I was, there was so much going on and financially the business was doing really well. So, you know, you're kind of in this, like, almost like this creative wave of life. And at that time, I'd had such a fabulous team. I had, there was probably about seven or eight of us, most of them who were interns from local colleges and universities that, you know, I coached and we were a great wine team. I always looked at, I always look at an organization like a, like a basketball team, you know, you've got your center, you've got your defenseman, you've got all these people and they all have certain roles and you need to coach them to be better at each of their individual talents. And so when I started to look at this amazing team I crafted, I started to come up with nicknames for everybody. And it started a trend uh, in my business where if, you know, for, for years after where everybody got a wine name. And so everybody got this sort of nickname and I got, I found super wine girl for some reason. I actually don't know exactly the moment or time, but I remember being like, I am super wine girl and you're going to be X, Y, Z. And I give people nicknames as, you know, I hired people into the club or if we knew people who were part of our members, um, I would give them all unique names if they'd come down and be part of our team and part of our club and part of our community. And it helped really create a sense of um, family amongst all of us. And I think that in that chapter of life, there was probably three years of that. And it was just probably one of the, the funnest three years I could ever have expected within the wine club. Let's go back to day one of the Aiello Wine Club. Like when you're incorporated and it's official, and then also look at the last day, your last day at the company after you've sold it off. How much different was that initial company from the company that you moved on from? I was definitely different. I mean, I think the day I, so, uh, the day I sold it, I had gone through a year and a half, 18 months to 24 months or something of really looking at the business part of the club, which was really hard for me, to be honest, because, you know, I started not thinking it was a business. I started on pure passion and philosophical reasoning. And this is what the culture needs. And here's what people need. And I wasn't looking at, you know, how, how many people I had to afford my HR department, my finances, my taxes, my rent. And so, you know, the last day of all of that, and even me walking away completely from um, the brand, which was really, really quite challenging, it, it had evolved into something that it needed to evolve in. And in some ways, I think there was a grieving process of, you know, walking away from something that you put so much energy and effort into. But at the same time, there's a relief of something because it's almost like you've, okay, I've had a child, I've helped him grow. This is where he needs to go. And he's off, he's off to school. And so for me, letting go was a very, um, ethereal and almost an exciting moment too because I was like okay what what's next what is the where all of these key learnings I just learned that I'd spent 13 years starting a business growing a business merging a business having a team CEOing my own company you know that was around a million dollars it wasn't even a, a huge company it was around a million dollars a year that I worked very very hard for um, that's still a lot of money yeah it's uh you know it's letting it go was a, a an interesting side of the the entire business cycle as well because it kind of to me it was a bit of a relief but it also I knew that there were so many people that were grieving over the fact that we didn't have any more events we didn't do any of this so you know what's my next phase of of helping and changing and innovating the industry which is exactly the reason I got into it in the first place post Aiello wine club 
what does a typical day look like for you? So now in the next phase of my career, I'm really looking at what are the other ways that I can impact, innovate, and change the wine business. And I think that, uh, you know, my original passion and philosophy of the wine club was how do I shift all of these wine people into wine? Because that's what the wine business needs. I was looking out for, you know, not only am I having a good time and learning lots of new things about wine, but I'm actually, I'm, I want to shift and change cultures and industries, particularly when something like wine that needs to be youthful and young and and feminine, if I will, but it needs to have alternative voices. It needs to have people who are trailblazing. And I think that now I'm looking at new ways to help shift shift the world. I'm still writing a lot, actually, and I'm I'm changing the way I'm writing. It's a bit more, I think I was writing lots of lifestyle articles before, and now I'm writing a bit more. You know, I'm getting into the celebrity wine culture. I just started, you know, I interviewed John Malkovich about his wine just a couple weeks ago and it got massive published. john malkovich fan <laughs> i'm oh, sorry malkovich. i watched I, I watched space force this weekend and he steals if you haven't seen it sorry not to digress but space force on netflix he's in it and he steals every scene he is like that show's kramer i mean it's like john malkovich he has a winery in provence and i got to interview him for uh the wine enthusiast magazine which was uh, to be a big feather on my cap i'm now an international wine writer for a magazine that goes across the globe and i just interviewed a hollywood celebrity so i was you know to me i'm i'm kind of upping upping my career game by uh getting myself not only just known here in ontario and in canada but my goal is to kind of be be global be figure out how to you know how to connect with people around the globe and then to help how to help shift the wine business to help bring more alternative voices. I mean, I could talk, this would be a whole other podcast, but talking about, you know, how you're a female in the wine business. And I just interviewed Dylan Proctor, who's um, a black master Psalm. He's in all the Psalm movies and with everything going on in the world right now, you know, figuring out who are those alternative voices that are help changing the world of wine. And I think that's also very important. So I'm still doing a lot of tasting um, events have settled down a lot. I'm doing more corporate and virtual educations, uh, education for people. So it's it's definitely shifted to more to, I would say, more qu- quality over quantity in a lot of the work that I that I'm doing right now. Do you get starstruck when you interview the celebrities? And I want to preface that by saying that I do my own bit of freelance writing in the sports world, so I get to. I get to interview some really pivotal race car drivers and sometimes I kind of have to keep my composure when I'm on the phone with them. Do you find that with yourself as well or nah, cool as a cucumber? Oh, definitely. Like I fangirl out for sure. Like I interviewed Victoria James who wrote her, uh, wrote a wine book. She's a sommelier in New York and she just wrote her first book called wine girl. And I fangirled out like I was a five-year-old. Um, you know, knowing that I interviewed John Malkovich and it was kind of like, okay, oh my goodness. Like, you know, called cool and collected. And I've interviewed chefs, um, Mark McEwen. I've even like sabered with Mark McEwen. So there's definitely that like, you know, heart racing, um, starstruckness that comes when you're interviewing people who are just, you know, experts in their own craft. Got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. So the first one is, what was the last wine you drank? Well, I opened a bottle of wine last night from Rioja, Spain. Is there a particular country, an up-and-coming wine country, that we should be keeping our eye on? I think that South Africa is not only at the tip of the African content, um, where two oceans meet, but it is probably one of the most underrated and underdog winery wine regions in the world. So South Africa would be definitely something I would I would throw out there as a region. 
this podcast is going to go live on a Tuesday, beginning of the week. If you had to recommend one wine for everyone listening to help get them through the rest of the week to the weekend, what would it be? Ooh, Tuesday night wine. Um, right now, I think with the weather the way it is and, you know, Tuesday night tacos, Vino Verde is a fabulous wine. What I love about Vino Verde is it's, it's you know, a hop, skip and a jump over to Portugal at the very northern tip of the region. So it's cool. It's a white wine with a little bit of spritz and low alcohol. So it's perfect for Tuesday night. You're not, you know, diving into a 15 or 14% alcohol on a Friday or Saturday night or full-bodied red wine. You're finding something that's crisp and fresh. Uh, also has a bit of fun, uh, funness to it. So Vino Verde would be my answer. Your favorite movie? Under the Tuscan Sun. <laughs> Your favorite video game? As kids, we always had Mario Brothers. So we had the original Nintendo and and Mario Brothers was, or Duck Hunt was like two of my favorite ones. The most famous Italians in the world in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and if my dad had to look like somebody, he'd look like Mario. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, your favorite book? Wine and War, which is a really cool book about how war... Uh, all every single world where we've had has impacted the the world of wine and it's it's very very cool your favorite song anything by snoop dogg uh he's my favorite oh you gotta pick one come on drop it like it's hot well, okay. gin and yeah exactly gin and juice. gin and juice any of his classics yeah exactly it's like alexa play snoop dogg and i'm never disappointed so <laughs> <laughs> if hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story who would you want to play you I think um, Anne Hathaway or Meghan Markle could do a pretty good job. <laughs> the best advice you have ever received? You know, everybody just, I give it to myself, but I think it came from somebody I'm not really even sure, but it's like, just keep going. No matter how hard it gets, no matter what you're doing, no matter what's going on, just keep hustling. Just keep believing in yourself and going. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? Well, first thing I would say is keep listening to your gut. It's got you into some pretty good situations so far. And the other lesson I would teach myself is don't leave money on the table. Be a better negotiate and don't worry. It's, it's all going to be good, but don't leave any money on the table. Those Find a way to figure advice. out. Yeah. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Uh, my, I'm reading my answer to this. I would be a farmer. I would choose a family, probably something completely the opposite to what I'm doing, which is urban living, career driven. And then maybe just moving to the south of France or the south of Italy and then doing something completely original and simple. That's what Captain Picard did. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ange, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it, Victor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.